This episode is part of a lecture series on Simone de Beauvoir, brought to you by me, Lisbeth Schoonheim, and Ashika Singh. We are asking the question, how are her writings and her activism relevant to us today? Simone de Beauvoir may be known for her landmark publication of The Second Sex and for her contributions to the French existentialist movement. But as this series will show, there is so much more to be discovered in what she said with regards to phenomenology and various forms of oppression and resistance, and in what she did as a Marxist, a feminist, and as a supporter of anti-colonialist struggles in Algeria and beyond. In this lecture series, we will have a number of scholars presenting on Simone de Beauvoir's ideas and her life. We want to understand how her oeuvre might provide tools in making sense of 21st century issues and events. These presentations were part of the Simone de Beauvoir conference hosted by KU Leuven's Institute of Philosophy, which took place from the 2nd to 4th of June 2021. More information on the conference can be found in the description of this lecture series. These presentations were recorded during an online conference, and so you might find some issues with the sound quality. We hope that you enjoy this episode, and do stay tuned for others over the course of the next weeks. Without uh, further ado, it's my pleasure and honor to introduce Professor Catherine Ressiguier, who taught uh, uh, women's and gender studies at numerous universities, including the University of Michigan, the University of Oregon, the University of Cincinnati, among many others. And uh, she's currently professor of women and gender studies at Hunter College, where she's also chairing the department. She is the author of Reinventing the Republic, Gender, Migration and Citizenship in France, published with Stanford University Press, and Becoming Women, Becoming Workers, Identity Formation in the French High School with SUNY Press. She's currently at work on uh, the gender, race, class, and sexuality underpinnings of the 2016 Burkini bands in France for a work in progress titled Bombs, Beaches, and the Burkinis, Making Sense of Modern France. And I believe today's paper is very much in line with this work in progress. Her title of today's talk is Beauvoir, Bardot, and Burkinis, Making Sense of Modern France. So, Catherine, uh, the floor is yours. Thank you, Nidesh, uh, for uh, introducing me. Thank you for the organizers for putting this uh, amazing um, conference. Thank you for the presenters and the participants for creating this kind of community conversation around Beauvoir and her impact uh, then and, and now. Um, I, uh, I do have a, a presentation, so I'm going to share my screen um, and hopefully I'll do that successfully and all right, you see it? Yeah? All right. As Nidesh in, your, in his introduction pointed out, this is part of a much larger project, a book project, which um, I have to confess is very much in infancy. So kind of building on metaphors from yesterday, uh, it is very much in this kind of transitional stage where it's kind of bubbling in my head and hasn't been really kind of forged, uh, even though I do have a title, you know, titles are 
difficult and important. But uh, the other confession I have to make is, and which brings a little bit of anxiety, uh, angoisse, uh, even though I, the reason for the angoisse is real here, <laughs> is I'm neither a Beauvoir scholar nor a philosopher. And so I come to this conversation uh, with great humility. I learned a lot already. And uh, the, the, the two days of conference have revealed much of my uh, gaps in my thinking. And I already have a, a reading list that uh, needs to be tended to. So having said that, um, so this book is part of uh, this, uh, uh, this paper is part of a book project, Bombs, Beaches and Burkini, Making Sense of Modern France. In the project, in the book project, I wanna place the recent Burkini bands in France in relation to other seemingly unrelated topics, such as the emergence uh, in France after World War II of nuclear power and uh, as part of, a, a, of an identity, right? Not simply embracing the technology, but also thinking uh, this is what we are, this is what we, uh, we do as a modern uh, nation and uh, the emergence of the beach as a site of uh, leisure, of uh, consumer culture. Um, and I'm putting these sites in relation to one another, not simply as a way to analyze processes of uh, a national identity construction, which is really what my work throughout my career has been about, uh, but also to illustrate some of the ways in which borders, uh, and here I'm thinking, you know, not simply the physical border, but the rhetorical, discursive, uh, ideological uh, border, in which borders are being established through material and discursive practices that not only mark and bound modern France, but also help sort which subjects, that is, uh, uh, who belongs within. So that's the backdrop and then uh, the piece itself. And I was hope, you know, when I, when I uh, started reading about the beach and, and, and the bomb, Bardot uh, kind of popped up in several places. And so I thought that maybe it would be important for me to explore that a little bit. And when reading on Bardot, I happened upon a little text by Beauvoir on Bardot. And so here's my, effort at engaging this in very flawed ways. I'm already, I'm, I'm agitated about it already. But anyway, here we go. In August 1959, a full decade after the publication of Le Deuxième Sex, Beauvoir published a short piece in English for a squire titled Brigitte Bardot and the Lolita Syndrome. The essay was reprinted and published in 1960, again, in English as a short book with a large selection of photos of Brigitte Bardot. And this is uh, the text I'm gonna be quoting from throughout the paper. And I have to say, you know, the, 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 the presentation, the, the, the slides, I, I just could not resist the kind of visuality of the Bardot phenomenon. And I wanted you to kind of experience it at least fleetingly uh, with a few images, but I'm also uh, using it to uh, highlight some of the quotes. <coughs> Brigitte Bardot and the Lolita syndrome, which I will refer uh, uh, to the Lolita syndrome for short in the rest of the paper, sets out to unpack the Bardot phenomenon 
to analyze the character that Roger Vadim, uh, a filmmaker, but also Bardo's uh, husband, the very beginning of her long career. And uh, so to analyze the character that Roger Vadim and other film directors helped create and to examine the new model of women's sexuality that it embodies. Indeed, by the mid 1950s, Bardo had become, according to film scholar Jeanette Vincendo, quote, an icon of rebellious youth, natural sexuality, and beyond that, of French womanhood, both in and out of France, end of quote. In the Lolita syndrome, Beauvoir documents how Bardot ushered new forms of sexual behavior and subjectivity that connote, among other things, freedom, autonomy, and agentic power, and suggests that this new model does pose a threat to dominant French understandings of womanhood in post-war France. On New Year's Eve, here I'm quoting from the text, on New Year's Eve, Brigitte Bardot appeared on French television. She was got up as usual, blue jeans, sweater, and shock of tousled hair. Lounging on a sofa, she plucked at her guitar. That's not hard, said the women. I could do just as well. She's not even pretty. She has the face of a housemaid. The men could not keep from devouring her with their eyes, but they too snickered. Only two or three of us, among 30 or so spectators, thought her charming. Then she did an excellent classical dance number. She can dance, the others admitted grudgingly. Once again, I could observe that Brigitte Bardot was disliked in her own country. The opening paragraph of the Lolita syndrome lays out the premise of Beauvoir's musings in this little known, maybe not to this particular crowd, but this little known text on the iconic French actress. Brigitte Bardot, at the height of her popularity, was challenging normative expectations of French women's femininity and petty bourgeois morality, eliciting, in the process, the ire of many, as well as the adulations of others. The aim of this paper uh, is to sketch the impact of Brigitte Bardot in post-war France, a period that proved crucial to the formation of modern France in its material structures, as well as in terms of a collective imaginary whose traces are still felt to this day. I am reading the Lolita syndrome for what it might tell us about Brigitte Bardot as a representational, albeit contradictory, piece of our collective construction of modern France. I hope that Beauvoir's Lolita syndrome might help us reflect <clears throat> on and better understand current disputes about public dress and displays of femininity in contemporary France. Beauvoir's analysis of Bardot, if anything, should remind us that gender norms and sexual politics are at the heart of current French debates about national identity and belonging. My own contributions in the larger project uh, is to suggest that gender and sexuality are often deployed as a way to racialize entire communities. And I won't have time to get into this right here, but maybe in the Q&A we can start that conversation a bit. In the summer of 2016, some 30 French beach towns issued local bans on the wearing of burkinis. The mayors of these towns framed burkinis and the women wore them as symbols of Islamic extremism 
and a direct threat to French values in general and France's deep attachment to laicity. Amid extensive media coverage, internal debates and criticism from around the world, France's highest administrative court ruled that the bans violated basic civil rights. Many middle of the road French Republicans, as well as far right extremists, extremists like Marine Le Pen, the current um, leader of the French far right national rally, embraced the executive orders as logical extensions of previous body and head, coveries, head covering bans and welcomed them as an appropriate tool to fend off the threat that these fully clothed women represented for the country and its national identity. Others rejected the orders as ludicrous and discriminatory. Marine Le Pen's blog in the summer of 2016 reminded French people that French beaches were not spaces where men, women went to cover up. Instead, Le Pen wrote, quote, the French beaches are those of Bardot and Vadim, end of quote. So the Lolita syndrome is read by some as an extension of Beauvoir's work on the eternal feminine myth in the deuxième sex. So uh, uh, we heard about that yesterday. Um, in the essay, Beauvoir examines the Bardot persona, the carefully crafted, widely reproduced and astutely marketed image of the actress. The Lolita syndrome is loosely organized around three sections, three parts. In the first, Beauvoir points out the many ways in which the Bardot persona, I'm gonna to refer to that as Bebe. Um, she was so well known that we didn't even need to utter her name. Uh, so in the first part, Beauvoir points out the many ways in which Bebe rearticulates familiar construct of woman as an object fabricated by and for men. This is followed by a middle section in which Beauvoir examines aspects of Bebe that subvert patriarchal constructions of womanhood. Finally, the essay concludes with some reflections on the limits of these challenges and the, fu and the future of Bebe. In the Lolita syndrome, Beauvoir carefully documents how Brigitte Bardot um, be, um, the, the, the characters that Brigitte Bardot uh, represent in, uh, in the films rearticulate core dualities that construct woman as the ultimate other. These characters, however, also present subversive elements that reframe the eternal feminine myth. Beauvoir claims that Bardot departs from the eternal feminine in two fundamental ways. One, Bardot blurs gender and sexual dichotomies and ignores norms, in particular, moral norms. She kind of stands outside of morality. And two, Bardot authenticity, uh, a genuine presence, like her natural quality that so many people comment on. And in fact, that we're used often to criticize her for her bad acting. Uh, Bardot's authenticity in her active sexual subjectivity places her outside the frame of the object. Both, according to Beauvoir, present a direct challenge to dominant construction of sex and gender in, 19, in, the 50, in 50s France, 1950s France. 
The concept of, the, of, a, of a Lolita syndrome is based on Beauvoir's belief at the time that women in France and elsewhere were making significant gains in terms of gender equality. I hear that she recanted that claim, but you, you probably know much more about this than I do. As a result, new forms of, uh, of female character representation emerged not only in the movies, but also in the theater and literary production, most notably with Nabokov's novel from which the title of the essay is inspired. One of Beauvoir's claim in the Lolita syndrome is that erotic tension needs and builds on difference. Quote, love can resist familiarity, eroticism cannot, end of quote. In an age where women are moving into the province of men, they drive cars, they speculate on the stock exchange, and perhaps singularly, uh, in the case of France, display their bodies on public beaches, Beauvoir argues film and literature have been hard at work creating female characters who embody new forms of eroticism that reestablish and yet transform the social distance between men and women. Quote, the adult woman now inhabits the same world as the man, but the child woman moves in a universe which he cannot enter. The age difference reestablishes between them the distance that seems necessary to desire, end of quote. Brigitte Bardot emerged as a perfect example of this child woman whose ambiguous androgyny, according to Falaise, quote, manages to suggest childhood innocence and sexual availability simultaneously, end of quote. So from the text again. Seen from behind, her slender, muscular dancer's body is almost androgynous. Femininity triumphs in her delightful bosom. The long, voluptuous tresses of Melisande flow down to her shoulders, but her hairdo is that of a negligent waist. The line of her lips forms a childish pout, and at the same time, her lips are very kissable. She goes about barefooted, she turns up her nose at elegant clothes, jewels, girdles, perfumes, makeup, are all artifice, end of quote. Bardot's androgyny must be placed, I mean, when I read this to some of my colleagues here, they were like, androgynous? Bardot, what are you talking about? Bardot's androgyny must be placed in relation to more traditional forms of feminine embodiment against which it is contrasted and that it is replacing. The gender neutral, or rather, gender blending quality of her slim, narrow-hipped body is emphasized by the types of clothing that Bardo uh, wears on and off screen. Bebe, the persona, then is to be found at the intersection of media representations of Régis Bardot's private life, the imaginary creation of uh, uh, the characters Bardot portrays in films, and media representations of Brigitte Bardot, the star celebrity. So this kind of three elements here. All three representing Bardot as a quote from uh, the text, as a monument of immorality, end of quote. This persona insists, Beauvoir insists, is a modern rewriting of the old myth of the eternal feminine, one that reinscribes woman as other 
but does so by draping her in a new type of eroticism. And it is according to Beauvoir, this quote, this novelty, this end of quote, just talking about this reframing quote that entices some people and shocks others, end of quote. Her clothes are not fetishes, and when she strips, she's not unveiling a mystery. She's showing her body, neither more or less. And that body rarely settles into a state of immobility. She walks, she dances, she moves about. Her eroticism is not magical, but aggressive. In the game of love, she's as much a hunter as she is a prey. The male is an object to her, just as she is to him. And that is precisely what wounds masculine pride. In the Latin countries where men cling to the myth of the woman as object, bebe naturalness seems to them more perverse than any possible sophistication. To spurn jewels and cosmetics and high heels and girdles is to refuse to transform oneself into a remote idol. It is to assert that one is man's fellow and equal, to recognize that between the woman and him, there's a mutual desire and pleasure." End of quote. For Beauvoir then, Bardo exudes aggressive eroticism. She's uh, on, on equal footing with men in desire and pleasure, and she's as much as a hunter as she is prey. A, fr a French woman whose unfiltered speech and actions, her raw and natural demeanor in general, uh, but in sex more specifically, challenges essentialist notions of what constitutes womanhood in 1950s France. Bebe uh, does not try to scandalize. She has no demands to make. She's no more conscious of her rights than she is of her duties. She follows her inclinations. She eats when she's hungry and makes love uh, with the same unceremonious simplicity. This, this desire and pleasure seems to her more convincing than precepts and conventions. She doesn't criticize anyone, although now she does. She does as she pleases, and that, uh, and that is what is disturbing. She does not ask questions, but she brings answers whose frankness may be contagious." End of quote. The kind of provocative freedom that Beauvoir and others underscored in their reading of Bebe continued unabated throughout Brigitte Bardot's life. She married early and many times. She had numerous lovers. She refused to play the expected roles of good wife and mother that her bourgeois upbringing had laid out for her and rejected wholesale post-war French patriarchal morality. Quoting from the text again, Bardot is neither rebellious nor immoral. This is why morality has, hasn't got a chance with her. Good and evil are part of the conventions to which she would not even think of bowing, end of quote. As I end this presentation, I would like to suggest that Brigitte Bardot can be read not only as a product of post-war France with its euphoric optimism, openness to change and democratizing ideals, but also as a representation, I'm not sure that's the right word, of the period's more sinister elements, among others, racism, Islamophobia, and post-colonial resentment. Indeed, Bardot can be seen as, 
as part of the branding apparatus that modernizing France deploys in terms of fashion, culture, and national identity. Like Bebe herself, this era is marked with ambiguity and contradictions. Despite the fact that the Lolita syndrome focuses primarily on the discursive impact of Bebe in post-war France, Beauvoir is not oblivious to the fact that Bardot was also literally a hot commodity, an export product, as successful as the French signature automobile, the Renault, during the Trente Glorieuse, the 30 years that uh, follow um, the war. When En God Created Woman was shown in first-run houses in, on the Champs-Élysées, the film, which had cost 140 million francs, brought in less than 60. Receipts in the USA have come to $4 million, the equivalent of the sale of 2,500 dauphines. Bebe now deserves to be considered an export product as important as Renault automobiles, end of quote. Brigitte Bardot was not simply a product bought and sold, but her image helped sell and export other commodities. It also helped create inside of France a sense of shared identity, an imagined community where she was central, albeit a contested character. And outside of France, a national brand, one that connotes with freedom, sexual and otherwise. For instance, Bebe popularized the bikini in France and in Europe, uh, Bardo style, her hair, her dress, her bare body, ushered in France, in French and European-wide fashion trends. In addition, Bebe participated and helped create the image of the beach as a privileged space for pleasure, pleasure, sorry, and leisure activities in post-war France. Lest we forget, Bardo was also the first actress to serve as the model for Marianne, the symbol of the French Republic, in 1969. Brigitte Bardot has always been a fierce defender of animal rights, a cause to which she fully dedicated herself after she retired from acting very early, actually, uh, in fact, at 39, which is a, an interesting uh, thing that I don't have time to get into, uh, but certainly talks about aging and, uh, and how uh, the aging woman is perceived. A first public fight in 1962 was to impose this the stunning of animals uh, at the time of killing for, for meat consumption. She also campaigned successfully against the massive killing of baby seals in the 70s. One might argue that she was ahead of her time, kind of an avant-garde uh, in some ways. And she was ridiculed, uh, she still is, for her activism. It is, however, also in this fight that she has uttered racist, xenophobic, and anti-immigrant comments that have brought her a new kind of fame and generated more animus, albeit of a different kind. Her condemnation of the ritual slaughter of animals often slips into Islamophobic and racist utterances. She has been fined five times by French courts for inciting to racial hatred, in 2008, for instance, she was fined for inciting hatred against Muslims. And while she denies that she is a member of the party, she has campaigned for Marine Le Pen and is married to one of her former advisors. I'm almost done. Uh, perhaps the hatred she has aroused will calm down, but she will no longer represent anything for anyone. 
I hope that she will not resign herself to insignificance in order to gain popularity. I hope she will mature, but not change. This is how Beauvoir ends the essay. You know, it's a very short 37 pages. The final note follows Beauvoir. Uh, this final note follows Beauvoir's reflection on the ways in which the Bardo ima image in her films and in the media is going through a form of rehabilitation. Indeed, Beauvoir documents that she sees what she sees as a new focus in 1959 uh, when she's writing on Bardo's connection to the earth, her love for animals, the nation, and her capacity to be a wife and mother, although that's in real life, that's not at all. Brigitte Bardot did mature. I don't think she really changed. She certainly did not uh, re resign herself to insignificance and she still provokes hatred. And here uh, provokes hatred in both ways, right? She is inciting hatred, but also receives hatred. I'm gonna stop here. Thanks very much, Catherine, for this uh, lovely talk and for making us see Brigitte Bardot, <laughs> an androgynous figure that goes beyond good and evil. Uh, I've never seen her that way. So thanks very much. Uh, so there is a question from Kathleen. Go ahead. Thank you. That was it was so interesting to have this text discussed and contextualized in the way that you did. I mean, it makes us feel uncomfortable, I guess, because we can't see Bardot as a progressive figure in the way that Beauvoir apparently saw her in, in that text. But she did also, I mean, when I read that text, I, I did feel terribly uncomfortable, particularly because of the, there, there didn't seem to be the kind of criticism I would have liked about the kind of Lolita aspect of that child woman, which now makes us feel utterly creeped, I would think. Although Bar Beauvoir presented Bardot in that um, text as breaking through and therefore disrupting certain myths of women, <coughs> she did also recognize that this was a new myth. That it wasn't, I mean, it, sometimes it sounds as if she's just saying, look how natural she is you know, sweet thing. But actually she did recognize that this was an artifice, that it had been constructed. I, I would myself feel that she didn't recognize enough that this construction was not that of Bardot herself, but actually of Vadim. So, but, but even though it was, a dis, um, it was a disruption, it was another myth disrupting the myth. It wasn't the real. And I, I think she does acknowledge that in that text. And, and I think that's quite an important acknowledgement. Thank you. Kathleen, thank you. There's actually a, a little debate, not much. I mean, not a lot of people have written about this, right? Which is interesting because in some ways, maybe it speaks to the discomfort that you expressed when you started your comment. Uh, and and the, the debate is whether or not, you know, the, the Beauvoir, was mistaken in, in her reading. Uh, there is an acknowledgement of a rewriting of a myth, right? And, and the thing that's really important that I'm trying to also parse out in my own writing is that Beauvoir really makes it clear that she is not talking about the woman, although she slips there sometimes, about the real subject, the real historical subject. She's talking about the persona, the construction 
right? So, so clearly the naturalness is not Bardot, the, the subject being natural, but a constructed natural. And film critics in particular, Vincendo, really pick up on that, that clearly now with everything we've, we, we have learned from film criticism and, uh, and feminists, we cannot be that uh, naive about how much of a break it is, right? So yes, absolutely. What's interesting to me is that um, there is something that is uh, troubling about Bardot in that moment, right? The kind of emotions, and I didn't get into that, I didn't have time, but the kind of hatred she uh, uh, evokes in France, you know, uh, some PTA uh, group uh, condemns her when there, there are a couple of killings in a, in a small town in France, just after uh, uh, Dieu Créa la Femme was shown and, you know, people say the, the kids killed this guy because, you know, it was like the kind of uh, uh, extreme emotions seems, points to, some, to something that we need to unpack. And I mean, one thing that I have learned certainly in this on my, on my reading list is that maybe it's the ambiguity and actually there is a feminist scholar who really writes about Bardo as this ambiguous uh, character. And I didn't realize that this was such a, like a, a central concept in, in Beauvoir. This tells you how much, I, how little I know. And so maybe that's where I need to go, right? To kind of peel or layer that analysis of, of the ambiguity of the construction. And, but what, which works for my bigger project, which is really, I wanna, I wanna kind of put Bordeaux in relation to France's own ambiguous self in terms of our, our own self-construction, right? So anyway, thank you. Definitely something for me to, to work on. Thank you. Thank you, Catherine. Uh, there are a number of questions coming up. Uh, the first from Julia Janssen. Uh, Julia, uh, go ahead. Thank you, Nidesh. Um, thank you, Catherine, for your presentation. Really interesting. And thank you also for making some of us uncomfortable. I think that's also actually seriously very helpful. And I just um, wanted to follow up on what you were saying towards the end of your uh, response to Kathleen's question just there uh, about ambiguity. I think really that is key because to me, this book um, by Beauvoir is in a way I mean, all her books in a sense are, but she's performing, I think, also something that gives us a clue about how we can get better than Beauvoir observed. We are at solidarity. <laughs> yeah, so, so keeping in mind that uh, Bardot is a figure who's being objectified and totalized and rejected from very different, from actually opposing sides. Uh, and that, you know, we also, as women, feminists, uh, philosophers, or other kinds of researchers, tend to be, you know, perhaps, no matter how enlightened we think we are, too quick to judge. And, and so I think it's a very interesting figure to, to try and uh, learn another lesson about this. So it's it's not really a question, but but a comment maybe you would like to respond. Uh, I mean, that that is why I am, I'm fascinated, right? Because in some ways the, the, the immediate reaction is a bad dog. 
I mean, it's kind of uh, right uh, right now. But then you kind of step back and you look at the kind of um, judgment she has received, and then you start you start sorting them, right? And you say, well, this maybe, but this. She was, you know, she was like in in nineteen in in the fifties saying, no, I, well, yes, I, I I'm bearing this child, but I re, I don't want to do anything with it with him, right? This kind of complete rejection of motherhood that gets her so much hatred by you know the uh, uh, the the moral uh, uh, um, dominant forces in 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 France, right? Something she never claims of, of feminism, right? Uh, but in in action, she she disrupts things in very interesting ways. Now, clearly, uh, uh, her activism for animal again, she received so much so much ridicule, in part because the, the, the idea that she couldn't act, that she was not a good actress, uh, kind of followed her, and so, so she can't hang now. She's like she's like giving us a headache about you know not eating meat, you know. Denying something that is now kind of almost a, a, a central uh, argument for a very large portion of progressive uh, uh, communities, right? Uh, we tend to think to not think about. And in in the middle of that of that uh, battle, she sli slips and she slides in this very hateful uh, construction of the other, right? And so I think that it, it, it's, it's, a, it's a very uncomfortable mirror that we have to, and I think that in some ways, uh, you know, if, we, if, we, if we're serious about uh, thinking about how nations construct themselves and present themselves to the world, that is also a mirror that France has to, uh, uh, you know, something that we have a very hard time doing, right? So anyway, so that's kind of the, but again, I'm so, I'm so much at the beginning and this is so helpful for me to think about, and I'm thinking of Lisbeth's uh, introduction this morning uh, about, about Beauvoir as a toolkit. I mean, I'm much more like a, into bricolage, right? I, I'm, I'm not a trained <laughs> a user of Beauvoir as a tool, but, but certainly this might help me think about how to work, think, um, with Beauvoir, with Beauvoir, and maybe against her at some points, right? As as we might need to. Thank you, Catherine. Uh, we have two more questions. Uh, one by Lisbeth, and then uh, Jennifer. Yeah, thank you so much for your talk. I really like the text on Brigitte Bardot uh, because it definitely makes us feel uncomfortable uh, reading the text uh, right now. I also always very much thought of Brigitte Bardot as some kind of like a proto-post-feminist figure, right? Like post-feminist in the sense that there is an denouncement of feminism, but also out of a sentence out of a sense that one can violate gendered norms. Um well denouncing that label of feminism. So there's something quite fascinating going on there, which makes her a very, which makes the text very relevant, I think. And then the question of course is, uh, could the Beauvoir actually help us to think about post-feminism, which she completely failed to understand maybe the more problematic parts, uh, not completely, but when she did not completely grasp the problematic parts of uh, Brigitte Bordeaux. I have a question that's more a question of clarification because you mapped out very clearly that there was a certain uh, hostility towards Brigitte Bardot in her fir first early stages, right? In the, the, the mid to late 50s. But then 10 years later, she's suddenly Marianne. 
So my, my question is a little bit like, what happens? Is it like the mediation of France's self-understanding in this particular decade that she turns from an expert product into a symbol of French uh, self-identification? And would that then also help us to understand how Brigitte Bordeaux reconceptualized herself and start to line her up with this very French nation of which she suddenly became like the pinnacle? I'm sorry, Lisbeth. Yeah, actually, I think that that um, Beauvoir ends on that. She 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 um, she argues at the end of the text that she seems to pick up on a co-optation of the image of Bardot. Right, this kind of this this uh, uh, erasing the rough edges, kind of uh, polishing her uh, her image so that she will not be as controversial. So picking up presenting her as, oh, but she's really nice. She loves animals, right? Look at, she, you know, on the, on the set of this, uh, of this film, uh, you, you know, there was a goat and, uh, and she, she bought it and then she brought it to her fancy hotel uh, uh, instead of letting her being killed after the, you know, so there's all these narratives about her connection to nature. And in France, you know, the, la, la, la France profonde is very much about the earth and the country. Uh, so there's that connection happening. Uh, and you're right. So the, maybe between 1959 and 1969, um, she becomes more palatable, right? Not she, this the historical subject, but the, the constructed image. So there might be a, uh, and this is something that I haven't really I haven't done the work yet, right? But maybe there's something, there's a shifting of uh, the construction of Bardot across those two decades um, that allows then to, uh, to claim her as representational of the nation, right? Um, in very problematic ways, of course. Uh, I mean, what I haven't talked at all about is of course, all of this is also about constructions of French womanhood as whiteness, right? Uh, so the blonde hair, the, uh, the particular body type. And so there's also that, that undercurrent that is happening during those, uh, those 30, uh, 30 years. And then she exits the film industry abruptly at 39, which is still like this amazingly looking, you know, woman uh, does not play in any film whatsoever and kind of moves into Kind of our activist phase, uh, and then little by little, I mean, not from the from the beginning, has very uh, problematic uh, ways of articulating a position until what we see and what we know now. Yeah. So thank you for the question. Then uh, Jennifer McQueenie. Thank you so much for the presentation, and I'll be quick. Um, I I was thinking a lot. It at times about uh, L'Invité and Xavier in L'Invité and how infuriating it is for people in society to see a being uh, express their subjectivity in ways that I can't reduce to my own categories of understanding, in ways that I can't possess sexually. Right, and that reminded me of Philippa's talk uh, about the incels and things like that. That, there, that there's this real, I think we, as feminists, we, we underestimate how infuriating a subjectivity that cannot be categorized 
can be. And in this case, it's complicated because Brigitte Bardot is also accommodating certain feminine norms in society and things like that. But just, you know, simply like speaking your mind in the workplace, you know, garners all of this vitriol and hatred for doing the fairly benign things, but expressing your subjectivity is, is so criticized and, and, and unacceptable for oppressed groups in society. Like you eat when, you hung, when you're hungry and not in accordance with what someone else is doing um, or norms and, and how infuriating that, that is for people. No, I, I think you're, you're absolutely right, right? That, the, that the, the vitriolic response is precisely because I think that Bardot, um, both in her construction very early on, but then in her kind of own subjectivity, uh, exceeds, uh, spills over, right? Uh, cannot be contained in ways by anybody, right? By, by the... By the the, the, the one who want to hold up uh, morality and, and good values as well by the feminists, right, right? By the men who desire her. I mean, one of the things that, that, that uh, Beauvoir says is that what, what um, Bardot does is that it erases the, the, the mirage that uh, desire, there's something, anything, uh, that's anything um, that desire can be lofty, that it's all about, you know, the body and the groin and the, you know, <laughs> and she, she, she called, so all of that, I think, is definitely this kind of excess uh, of, of subjectivity that uh, uh, troubles um, in many directions, which, may, which I think makes her this very uniquely interesting person in construction. So thank you, yes. Thanks very much, Catherine. Uh, and uh, indeed, this, this excess and, and this uh, almost sacred figures uh, reminds me also of the status of the, of the actor that can very often be scapegoated uh, and catalyze those ambivalent reactions uh, also uh, beyond gender distinctions. So uh, I think there is a, something productive indeed to set up as a mirror that speaks and makes us uncomfortable and pushes our boundaries till today. So thanks so much uh, for this wonderful presentation. Thank you for listening to this episode. We hope that you enjoyed it as much as we did. Information about relevant literature mentioned in the episode can be found on the description of this podcast. Stay tuned and we hope to see you back soon.